exacerbate transient toaster strudels, everybody. It's Southpaw <laughs> Deep Space Nine. I'm your host, Angel Marti. This is the show where I introduce my co-host, Southpaw Sam, to the world of Star Trek with the most communist Star Trek show, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. We go week by week, watching episode by episode, analyzing the different political and narrative themes, both overt and subtextual. Today's episode is Season 1, Episode 4, Babel. Now, as a, even though I, of course, am the veteran Star Trek fan here, uh, I don't always remember the very, like, episode by episode, detail by detail things about the show until I rewatched them. So while I was rewatching them, I, I almost got annoyed at how, like, serendipitously relevant this episode from <laughs> 1993 ended up being. Yeah, same thoughts. Um, like I said, I never watched the show like watched the show, but I did, you know, catch it during the 90s as far as like channel surfing or, you know, random episodes, but nothing where I was committed. And I remember this episode and I didn't think anything of it back then. I just thought, oh, OK, this is what's happening this episode. Whereas this time around, it was like, holy fuck. Right. Yeah. If anything, you probably just remembered, ah, oh, they're saying silly things on the space show. Yes. I thought it was just about that. The episode was like they catch a bug. And they say weird things, and it's a comedy episode. Right. <laughs> Once again, the station's broken, and it's O'Brien's job to fix it. Uh, not, I, I do, uh, one of, in my notes, I just put down that I love that in a 24th century where everything is supposed to be smoothly running and super automated, we still have this character of this put-upon Irish handyman in the form of a uh, Miles O'Brien, and that it's both anachronistic and realistic at the same time. <laughs> you notice how he had to roll up his sleeves, like literally roll up his sleeves. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm not going to blame uh, the failure of my marriage entirely on this, but for but I know one of the differences between me and my soon to be ex wife was that she did not understand the charm of Miles O'Brien. She always thought that he was boring, but I just feel like. There is something there is something specifically charming about like this is a show where it's the future and there's still this dude who's just like a, a Joe Schmo. So so he's so it opens. I mean, he's he's not just like, you know, doing boring things like there's some people stuck in an airlock. Uh, he's trying to get them out. And then at the same time, this alien who uh, to me looks like Jamie Heineman from Mythbusters uh, comes complaining <laughs> that he's been waiting two days for repair on his ship where he has like a, a precious cargo that'll spoil uh, if he doesn't get to his destination soon. And uh, O'Brien's just like, uh, you know, I'll get to it. And he, we see, we, we see that he's sort of go being stretched thin going all over the station uh, and, uh, again, it, it's, it, it seems like they're very much loading top heavy in the first season, which is smart, you know, just this, this thematic emphasis on the fact that this is not the enterprise. This is not, you know, familiar territory. Like there are problems on deep space nine. People can get overworked because there haven't, you know, things have not been fully staffed and set up. And, uh, you know, it's just we get to we get to see people sort of experience more familiar uh, inconveniences and problems in this show as as opposed to like other other treks where it maybe is a little bit 
idealist to the point of being unrelatable to the contemporary viewer. Yeah. I think if the next generation is like being a homeowner of a very nice house, Deep Space Nine, at least thus far, feels like somebody who's only ever lived in apartments. And it's like Deep Space Nine is that apartment where when you first move in, it looks like, okay, we're in a new apartment. And then you realize you can't open the windows. You can't plug anything in. You can't open any of the drawers because everything's been painted shut, right? And only people who've lived in, you know, kind of cheap apartments, low-income apartments know what I'm talking about. And, you know, if Star Trek The Next Generation is that nice house, then this is more of that low-income apartment with everything painted shut. And you need the handyman to fix everything. Yeah, I'm I'm living in a in a building that's like definitely one of those, you know, very newly renovated uh, uh, buildings in the middle of Hollywood. But like the first day that I moved in, I like pulled open one of the kitchen drawers and like it wasn't actually like the drawer wasn't screwed down to the rails. So I had to like actually put in a maintenance request to like get the drawers to actually be attached to the little railing so it wouldn't just flop open and spill my silverware everywhere. So (laughs) now as an adult, I definitely relate to the Deep Space Nine experience. And uh, so we see him interacting with different crew members as he's sort of going through his his different uh, errands. And I couldn't help but notice that Kira is like, sympathetic to O'Brien being overworked. Like she's the first one to notice that he's being a little strained. Like she, you know, he even like helps Dax with something and Dax is sort of established as being nice to everybody. But here's the first one to say like, you could use some sleep, which I, which uh, makes sense to me. This episode reminded me a lot of like a good pro wrestling match where a good pro wrestling match also has like false finishes, but It also has swerves where it makes you think it's going one way, but then the match goes another way. And so all those little details about O'Brien and even opening up with O'Brien and he's obviously exhausted and overworked. I thought this episode was going to be about something else. I thought it was going to be about he's overworked and he's going to, you know, just collapse. And even like Kira's line is kind of building a little bit of solidarity. And then the swerve comes and yes, he was being overworked, but it was not the plot. Yeah. The inciting incident of the plot is not due to O'Brien being fatigued. It's because there's like a technological MacGuffin. Uh, there's some kind of ominous device that's inside the replicator matrix. And then you realize it's a pandemic and you're like, what? Holy shit. <laughs> and so, I, I mean, there's a reason why it becomes kind of a meme later on in the show that certain episodes are known as O'Brien must suffer episodes. Uh, and this, uh, this definitely is like one of the first examples of that, at least this uh, cold open. Another thing I note. Uh, so the first thing that uh, O'Brien, oh, uh, after he fixes one of the replicators, the first thing that he orders is a uh, black coffee, double sweet. And again, as a, as a veteran Star Trek fan, I can't help but contrast his very like uh, salt of the earth working class choice against uh, Picard's fancy Frenchman, you know, always ordering tea, Earl Grey hot. It's just there's there like again, I you know, Deep Space Nine. I think there's a, a large fan base that very much accepts it as one of the best Star Trek series. Um, 
but in its time, very much like Discovery Now, uh, people forget that that in its time, a lot of people didn't like it originally. Like apparently, you know, the network got a lot of hate mail about, you know, how different it was, that it wasn't on a ship. It wasn't on a ship. How dare they? Yeah, because I mean, a lot of people were just really attached to the idea that it's a trek through the stars. It's supposed to be on a ship. They're not trekking. It's not called Star Stay Put. <laughs> so we jump to uh, from O'Brien just having, you know, his one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich style uh, travails uh, <laughs> to Quark's where business is empty and Odo's just being a fucking cop gloating about it. Uh, and it turns out that Quark's business is suffering because of the replicators being broken because somebody tries to order food uh, and it turns out to not taste good. And, and uh, uh, to, Odo's, to Odo's credit, some guy who is angry about the soup that he orders tries to force feed it to Quark as punishment, but then Odo pulls him off of Quark. But tell the audience well, what move. Oh, yeah. So I'm not quite sure. It really looked like Odo did a Vulcan nerve pinch on him. But I, I, I wrote that down. And I'm not quite sure, though, because usually we see in, in, in canon that if somebody gets a Vulcan nerve pinch, uh, you know, they like pass out entirely. Whereas this guy, he definitely like seems to be especially affected by Odo, like grabbing him on this spot in his shoulder, but he doesn't pass out. So I'm not quite sure how to interpret it. I mean, it is they have established previously that like non-Vulcans can learn how to do it. Like Picard learns how to give a Vulcan nerve pinch after having a mind meld with Sarek in an episode of The Next Generation. So it would be funny if like it becomes like one of those things where it's like, you know, everybody knows what a rear naked choke is thanks to the UFC. And then like, but but in the 24th century, it's like everybody has like some rough amateurish idea of how to do a Vulcan nerve pinch. <laughs> yeah, he's not a master. Right, right. Now, it's just like in the 24th century, there's so many YouTube videos of like some <laughs> dude getting in a fight in like a McDonald's parking lot and he like pulls off a sloppy Vulcan nerve pinch. <laughs> Here's something again, I think you might have brought up this question before, but again, this scene uh, where Quark is talking about like using the replicators for his service and I was like, wait, so why would people have to pay to get food out of the replicators at Quarks if they theoretically have access to replicators in their own quarters? This is, again, one of those things they never fully explain, like the whole nature of, like, how do the transactions work on Deep Space Nine if you're, like, a Federation citizen? So I wrote down that just my headcanon is that there's probably some allowance that Starfleet officers and Federation citizens get you know, maybe some sort of like space UBI uh, to be able to go and like purchase things outside of Federation jurisdiction. That's the only way I can bridge that gap in my mind. So we see after after this uh, bit of bad business, Quark has some kind of scheme involving the other replicators on the station because somehow he has a computer in the bar that's allowed to see a view of like where it. It, it it like to me it's just like if like to me it felt like if the like electric poker electronic poker machine in a bar was somehow able to tap into like CIA database like why would the <laughs> computer in the bar be able to access like 
high priority security information. But then again, I mean, it's like we we again see that Quark is like very proficient in like black market tech and stuff. So chances are he put that in there and it didn't come standard equipped. And like, I guess as Marxists, we can say that Quark is sort of this archetype about how uh, somebody who uh, has like any kind of moral compass is always going to suffer from, you know, sacrificing them for the sake of success under capitalism. And we always see these kinds of interesting clashes uh, inside of Quark mentally, but that'll definitely come up later. So so we see finally like the ins- the inciting incident of the plot starts to uh, uh, become apparent as O'Brien starts speaking in word salads. He's like, he's the one who's been working everywhere. Uh, so he's the first one uh, in who's starting to experience strange symptoms, which of course I think, yeah, he's a frontline worker. Of course, he's <laughs> going to be the one that suffers most strongly from from the uh from the effects of whatever the hell is going on yeah uh i mean just uh, uh, like i said up top this episode is just shocking to watch right now because it is a, like a huge feeling of like plus a change plus a change plus a meme as far as like how the situation in this episode unrolls versus uh you know covid19 right now <laughs> and even though he's white they do very much paint him as like the stereotypical immigrant. So with your point about frontline worker and he's like the immigrant character that also hit like very prescient. Yeah, actually, you know what? You d- you did hit on something that that uh, I didn't even think about before in that as opposed to TNG where like where you know Picard has a British accent, I th- of if I'm remembering correctly, like basically of the main cast of this show O'Brien is the only one with a non-American accent when speaking English. Like he is the only one that does have like a very clearly like non-American feeling to, you know, the way he interacts with with everybody else. So I think I think you picked that up in a very astute way that 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 I don't know if that was ever intended, but I think it's just one of those things where like all of these kinds of archetypes kind of just fall into place with O'Brien very perfectly. So, uh, we get an an interesting interlude here where there's a scene between Kira and Dax on the promenade where Dax reflects on how new it is to being perceived as a woman again and getting all this attention from men. And Sam, this goes back, this, this made me sort of reconsider something that I told you about, that I answered to one of your questions a couple of episodes ago, which is, you asked me, you know, like who, what personality is dominant in a bonded trill? Because like my, my sort of assertion was that, you know, the host remains dominant, you know, that it's like, even though she, you know, Jadzia has gained all of the memories and experience of the Dax symbiont, like her personality is still in main in control. But my response to this was like, why would Jadzia having lived up until like this point in her life as a woman be surprised by this. So I, I, I think, I think that's another one of those things where they haven't fully decided it themselves and they kind of go back and forth on it. Cause that scene was really not connected to anything that happened in this episode or the plot. So it does very much seem like with Dax, at least thus far, they are just trying to like experiment with what, 
they want to do with this character and what they can explore with this character. This episode is is interesting in that this word really this episode really does not have a B plot. Like this one is very much centered around this main story about this sickness that starts that starts uh, that starts affecting people. And so what 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 it does serve again I think uh, even though even though the Dax's comments on like her new gender experience is not so germane to the plot it does serve to transition from Kira in that scene interacting with Quark uh you know and showing that she doesn't like Quark probably because he might have done some unsavory collaboration during the uh occupation I I I'd like to see uh if we get that visited uh in some later episodes to then again transitioning to interacting with O'Brien and showing a lot more concern. Like I, I noted that O'Brien is the first non-Bajoran besides Odo that we see Kira act nice to. Like, like Kira is like not hesitant about like showing concern and like friendliness to O'Brien in a way that she doesn't do with Cisco or Bashir or like yeah, again, anybody else besides Odo. And I and I, I I guess it's like, you know, in my head and probably in your head, it's like automatically makes sense. It's like, yeah, you know, she probably is is, you know, more friendly to the to the gentle laborer, having seen, you know, people get exploited in Cardassian mining camps. But uh but uh, you know, I wonder I wonder in the normie viewer if that made as much sense immediately to them too. Yeah, it definitely seems like he was being shown as a vulnerable character in this episode. And her radar was so tuned into that right from the beginning. You know, the last two episodes, you know, with uh, past prologue and a man alone, you know, we, we see it is, we see Kira mostly in these very like sort of standoffish situations where she's like really chafing against, you know, her fellow crewmates. But it's like, then we go right to her just, immediately just being very concerned and and in a way that like does not seem to betray any distrust so again this is like i i I think we have the benefit of doing this very regular sort of like rewatch where we're going through all of these things in very close proximity but especially like the, the fact that this media was not produced or viewed during the binge watching age yeah i feel like i have to appreciate even more the way that these sort of arcs and sub threads are woven throughout otherwise standalone plots on these episodes. And something you said made me think about something because up until now, DS9 always had like these subplots, but ultimately in a episode about a pandemic, the disease overrides all subplots, whatever else you got going on in your life, whatever other narratives there are, it overrides them. So especially now with COVID that also hits very different. Yeah. So it, again, it, it, it's like, there's so many things about this episode that seem oddly like prescient to me. So we haven't like said it out loud yet. So, so the first sign that we see of this sickness that affects uh, the crew is that O'Brien while talking to Kira starts spouting these word salads. Like he's just saying complete gibberish that doesn't make sense. Or does it make sense? Or does it? Yeah, we'll get to, I, I wrote down a lot of the uh, nonsense lines that I ended up finding very interesting interpretations for, but uh, just to me, I just keep thinking how watching it now, the gibberish seems even funnier than it is dramatic, just because it seems like I'm watching a YouTube poop. 
like in the modern, <laughs> like just in the current age of shit post humor, like there, there, there's no way you can't like, I'm sure like, you know, in its, in its original time, it was, yeah, it was silly, but it just like, now it just seems like there, there's even a more deliberate kind of humor to be drawn from just pure nonsense. So I, I just have to fight through all of these modern lenses uh, when watching this episode to like make sure I'm not just projecting shit onto my interpretation. Because then now when they when they um when they identify that something is definitely wrong with him and they take they take O'Brien to sick bay, um, uh, O'Brien tries to write down something on a pad and hands it to Bashir, and then it's the text is nonsense. And then again, that just like looks like, oh, he's just sending him a latest Instagram meme from like teenage stepdad or something. It just all <laughs> makes too much sense. It's early Tim and Eric. Yes, yes. So uh, of one of the first line, one of the lines that he says that uh, that I just enjoy uh, is strike limits flame the dark true salt, which I said it really sounds like it could be some kind of poetic leftist slogan. If anybody's listening to this and is good with Photoshop, if you can just uh, make like a picture of O'Brien and then put one of those old tiny tattoo scrolls like around him that says strike limits, flame the dark true salt in like old tiny tattoo font, that would be, you know, I'll, I'll get that tattooed on my arm. I've got space on my skin. Also, strike limits, flame the dark true salt. Uh uh, I like to think he's saying that even though there is a limit to uh, strikes, that if you salt your workplace, unionizing non-unionized workplaces, that's that's the the dark true salt. <laughs> a note to our loyal listeners: If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. There's this moment here where, where Bashir starts to explain what aphasia is. Like he diagnoses Bashir with aphasia. So I spoiled this joke this this uh, on my Instagram a little bit, but this is my favorite word salad that Miles says, which is, Victory strikes limits frosted wake. Miles O'Brien in 1993 predicts the Kellogg strike. He predicts that indeed people stop buying Pop-Tarts. The victory strike is limiting the frosted wake. Keep boycotting Kellogg's products, people. Let's limit that frosted wake. Again, if somebody photoshops that, we can make it the, f- let's make that our first uh, merchandise for this podcast. If somebody, <laughs> if somebody wants to just make a, like, um, I don't know, a Sabatabby with uh, Miles O'Brien's face that says Victory Strikes lim- Limits Frosted Wake. I think that's that's a good logical piece of merch for Southpaw Deep Space Nine. <laughs> Just random shirts with Miles O'Brien saying like classic lines from the show. Classic lines like, way link the fleet. <laughs> so one of the things I then notice is that, okay, so as we start to, uh, so Miles is out of commission and then there's a, there's a sort of meeting of the main ops crew. And then because Jadzia is the, uh, the uh, science officer, Cisco assigns uh, her to become, to cover O'Brien's duties. But then 
she starts suffering from the aphasia virus as well. What if this virus is just strike flu? <laughs> what, it could be that that uh, O'Brien, with proper uh, uh, sense of his own worth, starts faking this disease to avoid being overworked, and then Dax and Solidarity starts uh, copping out of doing all of this ridiculous work as well. <laughs> yeah, so not only not only is there a, a strike flu, but then uh, Cisco, uh, hoping that uh, class consciousness does not become infectious, uh, declares the entire <laughs> the entire station under quarantine. It because it, again, it's just this weird retroactive, uh, uh, it's like retroactive prophetic feeling that feels obnoxious because the next scene we see is even though the station is under quarantine. Quark's bar is still running and it, it it's like everybody's everybody's going there. And he even uses the phrase, Quark uses the phrase essential station service. <laughs> Odo's like, why are you open? There's a quarantine and Quark's like, I'm an essential service. Like even the verbiage is like exactly similar to like what's being circulated in the popular media right now. And then he goes, this quarantine has everybody on edge, Constable, saying that, like, you know, if everybody's going to be quarantined, you have to let them at least go out. I think at the start of the pandemic and the lockdown, wasn't there like an uptick in alcohol consumption, too? It really just feels like this is the, it, 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 there must be this kind of paint by numbers of how like human society you know, under capitalism reacts to a quarantine pandemic situation, which is like everybody like fucking, uh, uh, you know, becomes petulant like a little child. And they're like, oh, I can't go to work, but I can still go out and drink. Right. And then the next stage, of course, is like, but business still has to happen. What about the economy? <laughs> uh, after after dealing with Quark, we see Cisco getting attacked, getting uh, uh talked to by the Jamie Heineman alien who asked for permission to leave the station because his cargo will be ruined if he has to wait any longer. However, I like that he's like after like just some gentle prodding, he actually is just really honest and he looks Cisco dead in the eyes and he says, he, I don't want to get sick, which like, I feel like that is a refreshing bit of honesty compared to how most people have reacted to COVID because I, I feel like very few people were like honest who, who the people who like wanted to just still keep their life going as normal, even when like quarantine and mask mandates happened. None of them were honest enough to just say, like, I don't want the discomfort of having my life disrupted. Like they always wanted they, they always just sort of uh, uh, switched it to some larger like bullshit moral argument about freedom and you know like america's about freedom instead of just saying like i don't want the psychological trauma of having to change how i live my life i was thinking about parallels to now and there's so many parallels right whereas with that character i was like is he the parallel of like today's anti-vaxxer or truther and really that character is not he doesn't try to make like the sickness as a, as a rumor or a hoax. Like he very much acknowledges the severity of the disease. He doesn't exist in real life. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yes. That is the most fantastic part of this whole episode is this guy who like, 
doesn't comply with the doesn't want to comply with the quarantine mandates, but simultaneously acknowledges that the disease is a real and present threat and is very honest about his motivations for <laughs> violating the quarantine protocols. Like this is the most unrealistic part of this entire episode, not the fact that they're, you know, by a wormhole. <laughs> They probably at the time thought that was realistic and it's like, nah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it, Again, if like if you wrote this very same piece of fiction right now, everybody would be like, this is so fucking on the nose. Like, are you like seriously you're doing it? Like right now, again, Star Trek uh, season uh, Discovery season four is sort of having the, the if you watch some of the behind the scenes like vignettes that they publish every week when there's a new episode on Paramount Plus. They're talking about how like this season's arc is sort of a very, 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 very like intentionally extremely loose like analog metaphor for COVID because there's like a an, there's like a space time anomaly that's like destroying planets and is threatening the entire universe and people are panicking. And they're just like, we didn't want to do a COVID season, but we wanted to at least touch upon some of the th- some of like the feelings of the current moment but it's like just then there's this episode here that it's just like this is the covid episode but it was written like 17 years too early (laughs) yeah and then and then again like clockwork so we find out that quark quark is using a uh crew quarters replicator from a an uninhabited room to make food for his bar and then again we have this weird you know sort of moment of like how does the federation work because odo of course practicing his seemingly legal entrapment uh you know uh, just masquerading as parts of the scenery he catches quark uh and says he does say that quark could have just asked to use the replicator so at the very least we have it established in the text that the replicators are like not being gate kept they're not being obstructed like anybody can use the replicators which again makes raises the question why would anybody order food at <laughs> at at corks when they can just get it on their own like like if anything it would be smarter to just be like you know uh uh cork uh, could be one of those like bring your own food type you know places i think they're really just paying for the companionship of the bar that's true that's true that's actually a really smart way you know what you know what sam that's that's such a good way to view it because you're right. It's like people who pay for bottle service at at clubs. It's like nobody like like if you pay for bottle service at the club, it's not like you're paying for the fucking bottle of alcohol, which like would cost 400 percent less if you just bought the bottle at a liquor store. It's you are paying for the privilege of like saying, hey, I can afford this atmosphere. So, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense that I guess it's like and and that that seems I can imagine Quark in my head saying. They pay for the atmosphere, Commander. <laughs> I can't. I can't do. You need the teeth to really get like the voice down, but it's just very easy. It's just like the one rule of acquisition number four ninety two: always commodify atmosphere. Like it's just that you you definitely hit the nail on the head, Sam. With the bottle service too, you can't get a table at a club unless you do bottle service as well. So it's like the bottle service is giving you entry into seating areas. Yeah. No, you know what? All right. So I think I think we've co- we've collectively constructed a, a a 
a retroactive headcanon that makes everything make sense. Maybe it's just because they didn't want to look again. I, I think that sometimes it is the right choice as a creative to not try to like over explain your world and like get up your own ass trying to make sure every single thing is, is, is like fully explained because it is more fun to be able to sort of let the fans do it themselves. Our version of DS9 is better than the real version. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I like to think that like the quote unquote real version is the the combination of our interpretation along with what is in the text. You know, it's like it's like you can't it, it's like playing it's like playing Star Fox 64 with the rumble pack. You need both both aspects of it for the full enjoyment. <laughs> Yes, so do not watch this series without watching it along with us. Yes, yes, we are the Rumble Pack. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so again, uh, th- in another like like clockwork moment, we see that uh, Quark is using the replicator uh, to uh, to service his bar, and so that means that since since in the cold open we see that like the technological MacGuffin is uh, part and parcel of the replicators that Quark's spreading this uh pathogen that we later later learn is uh was create uh, again the the little device that we saw cause is programming the replicators to create the virus like in the food that it creates and then quark using a, a using a contaminated replicator to service all of the people in the bar has become a super spreader nexus he's like that chris jericho cruise <laughs> I'm sorry to bring pro wrestling into our into our Star Trek talk, but never apologize yes. for bringing up pro wrestling. All right, never. Yes. That is a hard rule here. But but uh, again, it's it's like it it's hitting. This show is like hitting all of those little things. You know the 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 pandemic happening, the rebellion against the quarantine orders, the super spreader events. But uh, they're they're examining the station systems. And then uh, Kira finds the virus, that, the the little technical MacGuffin that we saw in the cold open. And then she immediately says that it's Cardassian tech. And um, I have I have several notes here where I sort of talk about my great appreciation for Nana Visitor's performances, Kira, because she really puts in this lovely little subtone of satisfaction when she makes the conclusion that it's Cardassian tech, because she's very <laughs> much like happy that to like, it's just as she thought she can blame it on the Cardassians. Aha! But later on, we find out that it's not Cardassian tech. It's actually, cre- it, it was created by the Bajoran resistance. So again, in these like just annoyingly all too familiar, you know, hitting all of the paint by numbers things, we then of course see People start to get affected, like the sick bays are overwhelmed. So we have like sick beds set up in the freaking hallways. And uh, and uh, then we have uh, we see that Quark is not infected, uh, crediting the Ferengi immune system. And uh, he is in the he we see him talking. He's we see him shouting at somebody on one of the sick beds. And he says that he's uh, he's trying to make sure that his customers are not faking the illness (laughs) to avoid paying their bills. Which uh, my immediate note was, uh, why don't you tell them their student loans are going to go back into repayment while you're at it? <laughs> yeah, student loans, all the pandemic loans are now due, and uh, the child tax credit is ending. No more stimulus, and unemployment for a lot of people has ended. So yeah, 
yeah, eviction moratoriums are ending. It's just like Quark. Quark is just uh, Quark is the truth. That's just the uh-huh. unfortunate uh, true uh, nature of his character. He's just like, yep, everybody's dying, but like, bitch, where's my money? And by the end, right? Only Odo and Quark never get the virus. Right. Yeah. The yes. The co- uh, again, the people who are most served by by institutional capitalism, the cop and the con man, are the ones <laughs> who are who never have to suffer from the uh, side effects from it. And then again, to underscore my previous point is during that scene, Cisco uh, sees Quark, and then responding to his remark about people uh, faking the illness, Cisco goes, "No one could be that devious." And Quark, without missing a beat, goes, "I am." And again, this is, it's just like you can't not love a character who is that honest about himself. It's like every everybody knows that they can't trust Quark. And that's what they trust about Quark. And that splendid, it's like that splendid honesty about dishonesty. It's like always makes Quark such a delightful character. And it's going to, it's I, I can only promise that it will just be further explored and further enjoyed. So to something you said earlier about the replicators, I'm going to have to nerd out here. If there are replicators, why is gold a currency for Quark? Remember, it's gold-pressed latinum. It's not just gold. No, I get that. But in the infirmary, Quark keeps telling them, where's my gold? He never mentions the actual like substance of it, right? But I think that was intentional. It is just still saying like this is gold, right? For all intents and purposes, like yeah, it it is a convenient way. It is a convenient way to like make it like it is a space currency, but it's like phrased in this way. It it, it was kind of a smart way to do it. Yeah, it's gold pressed latinum, so it's like the audio. Oh, it's gold plus plus sci fi talk. Like the there again. Again, like I, I just I, I always enjoy these very smart mixings of like things that make it seem futuristic, but also relatable that I think Deep Space Nine does particularly well. And for us as viewers, it's also connecting to a historical truth for ourselves where gold was a currency and is still an asset here. So going back to my previous philosophical question, if there are replicators, why is gold a currency for Quark, right? Right. And it's the same reason it became an asset on Earth. Right. It's not because gold is shiny and definitely not because of its utility, but it's because there's a fixed supply, first of all. You could only mine a certain amount every year. Yes. The way you pull gold out of the ground, you just can't actually pull that much out at a time. And it's also nearly impossible to replicate. So on Earth, it became money because you can't flood the market with it and you can't counterfeit it. Now for us, because we're not dealing with gold that often, maybe you could fool regular people. But when it was used as currency, like just the average person would be able to tell like gold from fake gold. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do drop either in a later episode or somewhere else. They do drop that like there is some there is some particular property of latinum's like molecular structure that means you can't replicate it. So I think I think you hit it on the nose that like in a in a replicator society, the thing that would become like scarce enough to to the thing, the thing that still is able to generate scarcity to create its own value is something that can't be replicated. And even gold bugs who don't know anything about Star Trek talk about it, that 
it's the one element in the universe that you can't replicate. And that is why gold is money. Now, that's not exactly true. We don't have the current technology to replicate it, but theoretically, you could replicate gold, but the energy it would take to replicate gold would make it pointless. It wouldn't be worth it. So then in the future, even with replicators, first of all, it would be so difficult for them to replicate gold and the gold stand-in, which is now in the future is latinum. But it's basically latinum is a future sci-fi, like fictional version of today's gold, right? Can you explain a little bit your point about the energy it would take to replicate gold would make it pointless? Because because in my mind, it's like, okay, if we're if we're granting the premise of, you know, that there's like these replicators, especially like it's just sort of granted in Star Trek that whatever energy source they use for these devices is something sustainable and like non-polluted. Like what, what do you mean by the energy it would take to replicate gold would make it pointless? So here on Earth, it would take some kind of nuclear reaction to replicate gold, right? So it just would not be worth it. But staying consistent with that gold itself would be really hard to replicate even in the future. But latinum, which is like future gold, I'm sure the properties make it even more difficult to replicate than gold. So those two things combined, I'm sure a replicator trying to replicate that would actually just end up using all the energy of DS9, which then wouldn't make it worth it. So for all those reasons, then gold still being a thing for pork, but also this kind of like frontier society, this market economy makes sense, not just for historical reasons, but also for economic and scientific reasons. I just uh, I just uh, researched, I uh, looked at that another substance in the Star Trek universe that cannot be replicated uh, in canon is dilithium, which is a necessary element of warp engines. So you have you have a currency, uh, pr- you have a currency and a fuel source that cannot be re- that cannot be replicated. Perfect, because they have to be connected. Because you have to have like a limit to energy to make the currency scarcity believable. Actually, actually, like uh, one of the big things that sort of triggers the collapse of the Federation. Uh, in in uh, Star Trek Discovery season three is uh, the uh, collapse of uh, the dilithium supply. So uh, oh. so again, we should do maybe we can do uh, another series uh, when we get into Discovery. But if you haven't started watching that, that's definitely an area to um, examine. But to get back to Deep Space Nine, so one of the things that happens uh, that I really want to comment on uh, as more people start to get sick. Uh, one of the one of the people that we see get sick pretty quick on is uh, Cisco's son Jake, and I live for the moments of tenderness that we see between Ben and Jake Cisco, where we see this father just like instantly switch into this firm, comforting, and like just like no hesitation about what needs to be done to comfort his young son. Like, I think I've said this before, but like Ben Sisko is the most emotionally healthy commanding officer in Starfleet history. And, you know, it's just like, there's no, there's no ambivalence about having to deal with a child, about having to be a parent. Like even, even before this happens, we see like, you know, he, he's like talking to his son when the, 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 Jamie Heineman walrus alien comes to a costume and he just like without missing a beat goes like go straight home. It's uh, it, it, and I and um, I looked this up. 
It's according to uh, the Star Trek Deep Space Nine companion, as cited on on Memory Alpha. The scene where Cisco goes into the infirmary to find Jake has come down with the aphasia virus was extremely important to actor Avery Brooks because it was the first scene to establish the physical intimacy between father and son. Indeed, this aspect of the relationship was initiated by Brooks himself. Quote, it wasn't a thematic element. I don't have any trouble being physical with my children. That's a part of my nature as opposed to something they wrote about Cisco and Jake. The first day I met Sirach, Sirach Lofton, the actor who plays uh, Jake, I hugged him and I hug him every time I see him. Yeah, uh, uh, I, Sirach Lofton talks about like how every time he, even as an adult, he sees uh, Avery Brooks, they always hug. So I, I think there's just this, it's wonderful to note that there is this, you know, especially at this point in time in television, underrepresented depiction of this like unapologetic tenderness and emotional uh, a closeness between a black father and a black child that is not just uh, that is also like a a, a conscious uh, advent of the actor playing the character. Yeah, hugging is cool. <laughs> that could be our next T-shirt. <laughs> if you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. It'll help us supplement the cost of running this project, the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week. And you'll be giving us some breathing room, not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also to expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Once they figure out that the source of the uh, virus is actually resistance tech, then we get, I, I, I think, you know, to go back to something previously said, we get into why this premise works so much better on Deep Space Nine, because they're able to so intelligently weave in all of these different things that have been going on with Deep Space Nine specifically, that it's just like, now they have to talk about... Um, you know, the legacy of the Cardassian occupation and the Bajoran resistance. And they have to talk about like, you know, the problems of the of the technology being, you know, not up to Federation standard. I think this is the first time I noticed them also using the term internment camps. Yes, yes. Uh, because so we find out that the virus was created by a scientist uh, named Deacon Ellig, who we also learn is part of a different uh sect of the Bajoran underground, the Higa Mitar. So in the previous, in the, in the uh, previous episode with um, uh, the one, so we, we learned about the, um, the Kon Ma. And so, so again, right off the top, we see immediately that the Bajorans are getting this very improved treatment from the very, from the heretofore seen monolithic nature of Star Trek aliens, where all Klingons are warriors, you know, all Vulcans are scientists. But here we see that not even, not, I mean, yes, all Bajorans are, you know, victim, you know, victims of, of occupation. But we see that within the Bajoran underground, there were these different competing sects and views and like, you know, tendencies. So after enough time, because O'Brien is an aphasia virus long hauler, uh, we see that uh, he starts to develop a fever and goes catatonic and that he might be dead in 12 hours. So we see that there's mutation that the virus is highly adaptable. Like the only thing that's missing here is that is Greek letter names for the variants of this virus. It goes to alpha to like the omega virus in a matter of hours. But then, but then here's the thing that, that again, I think uh, the one thing 
that I think uh, definitely it misses by not having been made right now is that if this was made right now, we would definitely see discussions about PPE. Like, like it is, it is so weird to me that they just assume the fact when, once they identify that the virus goes airborne, that they just are like, okay, I guess everybody's infected. Like we don't see the doctors, like they're on a space station. They could literally put on space suits, but they don't. I think this is the unconscious bias of the writers who are all Americans. Like if they had, you know, any connection to Asia, wearing masks wouldn't have been that weird. It would have been like the first thing that uh, somebody would have thought of. Whereas for Americans, that just, especially back then, it wouldn't have occurred to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because we, we do see in episodes of Deep of the Next Generation previous to this episode's airing, where they do like surgery and stuff that there is like space ppe that but that's only for surgery that's true that's true <laughs> so here here's a moment that i want i want i want to notice Kira's given the responsibility once they identify that the, the disease was created by the underground Kira has connections to the underground she has to find out if the person who made this virus is still alive and so she tr- tries to track down this scientist uh named uh named uh elig uh and Decon El- Elig, and the first thing that she finds is that uh, he was certified dead while trying, uh, killed trying to escape an internment camp. But she immediately doubts that. Like she doesn't like shrug her shoulders and go, "I guess he's dead." She immediately tries to look up who certified the death. And in my mind, I'm thinking, "Oh." She knows that there were probably so many faked death certificates as a way to schindler people out of the Cardassian internment camps that she would know to check if this was bullshit or not. I don't know. To me, I I thought this was a lovely moment of like, without explicitly explaining it, showing a character acting in a way that she absolutely should, like being as smart as her character should be given her backstory and her and her experience because something again as a creative type something that i get irritated with sometimes is when a show or a script like it lets the audience be smarter than the character even when the character should be smart enough to figure something out before the audience does well that was very much past prologue where she was like much more passive right oh yeah oh yeah that oh that's a good yeah no kira is definitely much more like on top of her shit and allowed to just be on top of her shit in her episode. Good catch. Good catch. But I just, in general, it's like, I, I kind of like when I get annoyed when like I'm shouting at the screen, the answer to this is this. We know we see all this information. Why don't you? But like the writers here, they, they allow, they allow us to just like see that Kira's crafty and smart and, and, and shrewd. And I really enjoy this. So ultimately so more and more people are getting aphasic, more and more people are dropping down into fever. Uh, Kira, um, the, the, the solution to this is all very simple, as you point out, is that Kira uh, commandeers a runabout, even though there's a quarantine, because she says she's uh, not going to step foot on the planet where this doctor, Dr. Cermak Wren, who was the associate of, of Deacon Elig, who certified the death certificate, she's going to kid, she goes down to the planet where he's based, and then beam naps him, which with beaming technology being as common as it is, I'm surprised that more places don't like just have magnetic shielding around them in order <laughs> to 
prevent people from being beamed out like, you know, uh, against their will. This episode also had a lot of like human rights violations, <laughs> like going back to like what you said about Odo and entrapment. That wasn't like the only one. Yeah, but at the very least, at the very least, it like feels more like like Kira. Kira always feels a little bit more justified in like, you know, just committing atrocities because they're done in the name of I mean, this isn't an atrocity, but like breaking those sort of rules what because they're very much like in the name of like revolutionary justice. It felt more like instead of saying she's bad, it was to me showing how the stakes are so high for this episode. So I just love how, again, Kira is like bullshit proof in this episode because when she kidnaps Cermak, uh, he says like, I wasn't an associate of, of Ela, um, Elig's long enough to know how the virus works. Like, I don't really, like, I can't help you. Kira, like, calls through the potential bluff and just goes, well, you're infected with this disease now too, because I've been infected. So you got to help me anyway. It's just like, Kira is just like already playing one step ahead because she's crafty. She's a resistance fighter. She knows how people might try and like fuck with her. And so again, lovely, lovely Kira moment. Very much felt like a gorilla fighter this episode. Oh, oh, you know what? It's good to point out that this is one of the first episodes where Ira Stephen Bear uh, contributes to the writing of it. So Ira Stephen Bear later gives us Bar Association, which, you know, ev- every every communist Star Trek fan loves that episode. <laughs> so I think I think it makes sense that we start to see Kira better executed once Ira Stephen Bear comes into the writing picture. Again, everything that happens in this episode is related to the A-plot, but we sort of have this nice little escalation that sort of feels like a B plot, but still related to the A plot, which is the uh, Jamie Heineman alien who uh, again in a later, uh, who in later shots, when we see more of his shirt, I decided he looks a little bit more like Jim Henson, but uh, (laughs) so the Jamie Hyman walrus, Jim Henson alien uh, tries to uh, leave the station uh, himself. And he's like, but the docking clamps haven't been released. So he's trying to, uh, pull his his ship out but it's uh again pulling then it it pulls back the thread about everything on the station is broken they can't release the docking clamps and so now we have this wonderful bit of action movie thing where we're down to odo and quark are the only ones not affected with the aphasia virus they have to release this ship from the station before it blows up and kira has to come back to cure everybody before everybody um dies of a fatal failure and uh again it uh, there is a lovely like well-executed simplicity to this episode where you have like the nice action movie thing that is not completely manufactured it like is a logical consequence but and it conveniently heightens the stakes another like maybe more of a nuance it wasn't like integral to the plot but what i liked about that whole thing with odo and quark and even like the way they set up o'brien was like that especially with the next generation and a lot of Star Trek, they make everybody like MacGyvers where everybody knows how to do everything. They're good at everything. Whereas you realize with this, with Odo and Quark, like, no, everybody has specialized skills. So not everybody knows how to do everything. So very much raised attention when they were both trying to figure it out as they go, you know? Yeah, because also neither neither Odo nor Quark are Starfleet. So, so yeah, they don't, they don't, you know, if, if, if any of the Starfleet officers, you know, had still been, 
uh, uh, lucid and capable of operating stuff. Yeah, maybe they wouldn't have those problems. But it is that that is smart. That is a smart observation that, you know, it, it was it, it is convenient that they picked like the two very adversarial characters, Odo and Quark as being the last two people who are able to work together. But also they both happen to not be, you know, Starfleet pro- science prodigies who can pull out a miracle <laughs> A solution at the last minute. I even liked how Odo doubted himself. He's like, I don't know if I can do this. This is just like, it's a very, very like, sm- like it's a very clean episode in that it's like you get every, everything makes sense. Like everything that happens is not only interesting, but it makes sense. Like everything is a natural consequence of the things that you've seen before, either in previous episodes or in this episode, nothing feels like it's manufactured for the sake of making it sexy you know, in the sense of like action being sexy or, you know, like every, everything, everything flows and is interesting. Good in-ring psychology. Yes. Yes. This is, <laughs> this is a, this is an Eddie Guerrero of an episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so that brings, so, so again, the, 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 the day is saved in that, you know, uh, thankfully Bashir was able to get enough notes assembled uh, before he became aphasic himself that, um, that Cermak is able to assemble a cure. So again, also the solution isn't a, a deus ex machina. It's like not super convenient. It's just, he was able to continue the work that had already been started. So, so the only, the only thing that I feel is like my genuine, that I genuinely dislike about this episode comes at the very end, which is, which is like, we see that everybody's been inoculated and cured of this disease, like the station's running. And then, and then Cisco goes to the replicator to get some coffee. And then he spits it out and goes, O'Brien, like in a way that feels very much like Jetson, you're fired. Like (laughs) everything about that feels like it's manufactured to just be kind of like a sitcom. Everyone laughs, freeze frame credits moment to the end, because like, Cisco wouldn't be angry at O'Brien, especially knowing all the shit that he's been through in the last 24 hours. Like it's, nobody who's that tender with his son <laughs> would then would then like be be like angry at a guy who almost died in the last day, like about like messing up some small thing about his coffee. But, you know, it kind of bookends with the beginning where. O'Brien as the working man and it ends with O'Brien the working man and like Cisco kind of being a stand-in for the CEO boss man you know yeah if any the only it is consistent with the O'Brien being like the the man my life sucks kind of (laughs) character but it's like it should have been somebody else besides Cisco yelling at him (laughs) but to uh what we were talking about earlier with the solution right I like how the solution was so simple, right? Quarantine and vax. And really, there was only one person who was non-compliant. But even that person was like so honest about it. Whereas like here in the US, getting people to take all those steps, like that's not the ending. That's just like the beginning. We're still trying to figure that out. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in in like the quote, uh, real life, unquote, Deep Space Nine, it's like they would like get an inoculation, but then the variants would, it's like they would reopen Deep Space Nine and then there'd be a new variant and then they would close it down again and then they'd be reopening it and then they would be trying to do partial reopenings and just, it would just never end. You could almost like see it as the Cardassians were Trump. Starfleet's Biden. (laughs) 
right? except like Biden is so much more like incompetent than Cisco. I would trust Cisco, but imagine like Biden taking over after the Kardashians, like running DS9, you know, it would be a fucking mess, right? Yeah, Cisco is what Biden tries to look like on the outside. And then like, you know, being like, we'll get through this, this will be better. And then Cork is Biden on the inside, who's like, <laughs> all right, give me my money. <laughs> the duality of man. Now, let me ask you this. Did we ever figure out why that virus activated now all of a sudden? Because that was like a pressing question at the beginning. And I don't know if we ever figured that out. I think I think it was just like it was something that had been like put there as sabotage, like when the station was being constructed, because Odo gloats like before I took over as head of security. Um, <laughs> and then I guess was just triggered specifically because O'Brien had been like messing around with that replicator. It's sort of like a like a Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, just like an ancient trap that had been triggered just because they they dared tread upon that ground. So it, I, it will be interesting if future episodes sort of build upon this theme of like DS9 kind of being like a bit of a haunted house that there we <laughs> might it might be booby trapped with other like legacies of the occupation times. Just the idea of DS9, right? People complaining about that it's a station and not a ship, but because it is a station that they're taking over, there's so many things for the writers to work with, right? Like going back to your point about the haunted house aspect as well. I mean, for the sake of comparing this to other Trek shows, like DS9 in and of itself is very much allowed to be more of a character in its show than like any enterprise is on, you know, in its own story. Yeah, I could imagine them even having like a ghost episode where like there's some ghosts. There will be ghosts. There will be ghosts. That's that's absolutely going to happen. So so you are your your premonitions are very much right. Well, you know, because they foreshadowed it here. Well, I think that uh, brings us uh, un- unlike our pandemic. This wraps up uh, Babel and this episode so we can at least enjoy the escapism of the fact that this episode ends. Um, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed it, even if you didn't, you should still support us on Patreon. This is part of the Southpaw, uh, podcast network. So if you go to patreon.com slash Southpaw pod, you can become a Patreon member where you will find, uh, bonus content, uh, both for the different other podcasts that are on the network, like Southpaw Prime, uh, Fight Study, <laughs> uh, Pride Never Die, uh, Working Stiff Radio, and you can find Southpaw bonus commentaries that are created by community members like you. Uh, and you can get an access to the Southpaw Discord, which is where uh, Sam and I started talking and germinated the idea that became this podcast. We will be back next time with Season 1, Episode 5, Captive Pursuit. That is, uh, again, we're going by the Netflix episode order. Uh, so just if you're watching it on Paramount Plus or any other thing, just look for the episode Captain Pursuit and watch along with us. And we'll share with, the, with you our thoughts and uh, feelings. Feelings are also important. That's why listening along with us and watching with us, we're not just going to break down, you know, what happened, the play by play and just give you some color. We're also just going to talk about feelings and opening up and hugging is cool, right? Yes. Yeah, that's that's our 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 the ethos of Southpaw Deep Space Nine is one feelings are important two hugging is cool. Can you hit us with the outro a cappella? Yep. Dun-na-na-na. Dun-na-na-na.
Bye.